is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. Hey everyone, this is David. Thanks for listening to the Bean to Barstool podcast. Enjoy. I miss tap rooms. I miss chocolate shops. I miss coffee shops, bars, restaurants. I miss getting to lead tasting events, something I was doing several times a week before last March. I miss London Co., the woman who introduced me to Bean to Bar Chocolate, and in whose company I am reminded that chocolate is essentially a magic elixir that delivers happiness and self-discovery to receptive tasters. I miss tasting flights of beer at breweries, each five-ounce sample offering a separate world of flavor as I scribble notes. I miss taking photos of perfectly poured beer, and I even miss wrestling with my social anxiety as I try to ignore the stares of curious strangers who are wondering why I'm photographing beer instead of drinking it. I miss travel. So much. I miss that first bleary-eyed day in a foreign city after passing the dark hours miles above the earth, unable to sleep, and touching down as a new world wakes up to another day. I miss the ineffably subtle differences in the way a new land smells and the quality of its sunlight. I miss letting friends taste my beer and trying theirs, no thought of risk, the past glass a statement of casual intimacy. I miss the first sip of a new pint and telling a friend they have to try it. I miss going to beer festivals with friends and doubling or tripling the samples you get to taste because you'll all try each other's beers. In Bruges, Belgium, years ago, we passed a laughter-filled evening with total strangers, including a jovial rabbit hunter for whom this was his local bar, and an attractive older couple from Italy who spoke little English. As the hours disappeared, along with social inhibitions, glasses were passed around to be sampled from. When we passed the couple on the street the next day, we all looked away bashfully. The intimacy of the bar where our lips that didn't share a language had been allowed to share a glass didn't carry over to the light of day. And that's the kind of thing that will likely never happen again. I miss tasting chocolate or beer somewhere besides my house, and I miss doing it with people. Virtual events are a ton of fun, and the last year and a half have opened up so many new possibilities for the types of online experiences we can have together. But those can't fully replace being in a room together, opening our senses to the same experience. I miss normal. Will things ever get back to that? Things are opening back up, and we've been able to visit some of our favorite local breweries, though we've mostly been sticking to patios so far. I finally saw my friend London recently, who was faithfully sharing the good news about good chocolate at Dayton's Second Street Market. But our fight against COVID isn't over, and I don't know when it will feel safe to reclaim all those experiences I miss so much. This podcast was born during the pandemic, and it's been one way for me to share the tasting experience with all of you. Bean to Barstool turns one year old this month, and today we're going to talk about tasting good beer and good chocolate, and we're going to imagine doing that together. Our senses are made of magic, or at least really, really cool science. So open a beautiful beer, unwrap some decadent chocolate, and let's use our senses to reach across the miles and experience something together. 
Shortly after the COVID pandemic began late last winter, rumors began circulating of a strange symptom that accompanied the poorly understood illness. Those who contracted the virus were losing their sense of smell and sometimes taste, even when they didn't have other severe symptoms. When the sense of smell came back, it was sometimes altered. Anosmia is the partial or total loss of one's ability to smell. Parosmia is the distortion of one's sense of smell. Agusia is the loss of one's ability to taste. Because I work in food and drink, these accounts worried me, but since the early stories I heard said those senses came back at full strength after a week or two, I didn't really worry too much about it. I was more concerned about parosmia, but even then, the odds didn't look bad. Then, early last summer, I found out something that absolutely chilled me. Anosmia and parosmia could be permanent, or at least very long-lasting. I went into my room, sat down on the floor against the wall, and started to panic, breathing hard. I could not lose this thing I love. I was terrified, and I stayed terrified, dealing with elevated anxiety and bouts of depression until I was able to get vaccinated this spring, though I'm still dealing with the residue of that fear. I process so much of my world through smell and taste, and through their love child, flavor. It's inaccurate to call the process of enjoying beer or chocolate or other indulgences a tasting. In reality, we engage all five senses in the tasting process, but even flavor, something we typically think of as purely related to our sense of taste, is actually an alchemy of several different senses working in concert, most significantly smell and taste. Most of what we perceive as flavor is really coming from our sense of smell, and that's why anosmia scared me to death. We often use the words flavor and taste interchangeably, but they actually refer to two different things. Taste is one component of what we call flavor, but because of the way the brain synchronizes our senses to make things simpler and more efficient for us, we often think our taste buds are doing everything. Let me explain how this works. Smells get processed in our olfactory bulb at the base of the brain. What we normally think of as smelling when we breathe in through our noses to detect aromas is called orthonasal olfaction. But it's not the only way we smell things, and the second, known as retronasal olfaction, is the key to flavor. There's a passageway in the back of our throat that also leads up to the olfactory bulb. This passageway is what allows us to pass air from our lungs to our noses and vice versa, but it also plays a critical role in flavor. When we take a food or drink into our mouths, maybe a piece of Dominican dark chocolate with bright fruity notes or an Irish stout with coffee-like characteristics, aroma compounds from that food or drink travel up our retronasal passageway to our olfactory bulb, and then our brains do something very curious. They make us believe we're tasting those aromas on our tongue. In reality, we only taste a few basic things with our taste buds. We have identified taste receptors for sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami, or savory, and scientists are becoming more certain we have the ability to taste fat as well. There might be a few more we haven't yet identified, but regardless, our sense of taste is a lot more limited than we normally think. Everything else we detect, the thousands of flavors we can identify in food and drink, is informed by our sense of smell. To save us the cognitive trouble of consciously processing two senses at the same time, our brains just make us believe we're tasting it all. A great way to illustrate this is with flavored jelly beans. I used to love to do this during educational in-person tastings. Grab one of those little mixed bags of gourmet jelly beans and you can try this for yourself. Pick a jelly bean at random without knowing the flavor. Don't smell it. Pinch your nose firmly shut and hold your nostrils closed. Put the jelly bean in your mouth and chew. 
Because your closed nostrils prevent air movement to and from the olfactory bulb, you're effectively cutting off your sense of smell, leaving you with only taste. And the only thing you should be able to taste in that jelly bean is sweetness. Release your nose and you'll instantly get a flood of flavor, and you'll likely be able to identify it as cherry or watermelon or s'mores or whatever. It will feel like you're tasting it, but you just proved you're smelling it. Doing both together is flavor. When I would do this with classes, I would start by giving them a cinnamon jelly bean and walk through this process. Later on, I would redo the experiment with another red jelly bean, and with their noses pinched, I would ask if now that they knew it was cinnamon, could they kind of taste it? Inevitably, a few heads would nod. I would tell them to release their noses, and that one was strawberry, further proving the point and also demonstrating how suggestion can impact the tasting experience. I saw an article recently expressing with wonder that all Skittles are actually the same flavor. The only thing they change is the aroma. I rolled my eyes at this highly misleading reveal because, again, aroma is most of flavor. You could absolutely do the same experiment above with Skittles instead of jelly beans. Because our brains simplify things for us in this way, it can lead us to largely disengage from our sense of smell in everyday life. We're used to identifying everything related to food and drink through our sense of taste, and that has allowed our vocabulary for aroma to atrophy. I hear from people all the time that they don't have a good sense of smell and so will never be a good taster. In reality, most of us have about the same ability to smell. The problem is that most people have never developed an expansive vocabulary for aromas. The project of becoming a good taster, whether it's with beer, wine, chocolate, coffee, or something else, is undoing the shortcuts our brain offers automatically and learning instead to consciously parse with any given food or drink what is smell, what is taste, and what are we identifying with each. Just as our brains take retronasal olfactory data and synchronize it with taste, the brain does something similar when we smell orthonasally through our nostrils without tasting it yet. We address this some in episode 21 about honey. Our sense of smell cannot detect basic tastes, but you've probably smelled something before and thought this smells sweet or that smells sour. Our brains learn to associate sensory inputs that are normally found together. When you smell something that smells sweet, you're not smelling sweetness itself. You're smelling an aroma that your brain has learned to associate with the presence of sugar. Fruit, maple syrup, honey, or even chocolate itself are all great examples. We smell the aromatic compounds released by these foods. Our brains remember them pretty much always being accompanied by sugar, and so they tell us sweet, even though that's not something you can actually smell. This matters when tasting beer or chocolate because aromatic compounds that signal sweetness to our brains might not be accompanied by a corresponding level of residual sugar in either of those items. Many hops give off tropical fruit aromas, so beers that feature these will smell sweet because we're used to associating these aromas with the presence of fructose, fruit sugar. In this case, though, these aromas are coming from hop essential oils, and the beer might actually be quite dry on the tongue. Chocolate is already something we've been conditioned to associate with sweetness from childhood candy, so evaluating how sweet a craft chocolate actually is can be tricky. In both cases, tasters have to train themselves to pay attention to the actual sweetness level of the beer or chocolate, rather than what their sense of smell is helpfully trying to shortcut for them. One way to do this is to pinch your nose shut before tasting a beer or piece of chocolate for the first time. Your sense of smell will be muted, and you'll only get information from your taste buds. Once you've done this for a few seconds to determine the sweetness level, you can release your nose and get a flood of aromatic information. 
This applies to your other basic tastes as well, though sweetness is the most common to find this interfering with. A great illustration of this is found in vanilla and cinnamon, two spices that are normally used in desserts here in North America. Neither spice is sweet at all, but when we smell something in which one or both of these spices are dominant aromas, we are conditioned to perceive them as sweet because we're used to tasting them in desserts. In many other global cuisines, however, these spices are commonly found in savory or even spicy dishes. Depending on one's cultural and culinary background, the brain might have completely different connotations conditioned in as a shortcut, and sharing and discussing these together with people from different backgrounds during the tasting experience can help us learn more about our own sensory systems and our unique cultural stories. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my Level 2 exam many years ago. I wish the Level 3 had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. This can work in the opposite way, too. The absence of a basic taste can make an associated aroma feel fake or thin. I talked with a brewer recently who had tried to brew a strawberry beer. Because only a portion of the recipe was strawberries, the beer smelled like strawberries, but on the palate, the strawberry flavor was very thin. They added a touch of acidity to the beer to simulate the subtle tartness of a strawberry, and suddenly the strawberry flavor popped into focus, and people felt it tasted more authentic. So, that's how flavor works. Without our sense of smell, it's a very flat world of basic tastes. And without even those, we're like sensory ghosts, haunted by foods and drinks we can't experience at all. With the onset of COVID last year, that's what scared me to death. I have friends who have lost their senses of smell to COVID and described eating anything as being like chewing on air or styrofoam. One friend is only now beginning to regain her sense of smell 11 months later. I was probably destined to care about the sensory world since childhood, when my curiosity over how things tasted led to my parents keeping the number for poison control taped above the phone. As a toddler, I was known to eat random wild plants, and once, while painting the trim on our house trailer, my mom looked down to find me seated at the bottom of the ladder, sucking on a paint-laden paintbrush. My tastes have refined a bit since then, but my curiosity for flavor has only grown. I've mentioned previously that I had a very strange religious childhood, one I only began to process and awaken from as an adult. 
My beliefs dissipated in the wild wind of the adult world, and they left behind a lot of baggage and an empty space that had once been filled with meaning and what it amounted to a belief in magic. As I fell in love with craft beer in my 20s and eventually bean-to-bar chocolate in my 30s, and as I grew in my proficiency as a home cook, I noticed something curious happening. The role faith had once played in my young life of pushing me to explore my identity and experiences, contemplate my world, and experience wonder and connection to something bigger than myself was now transferring more and more to my senses. The quest for the eternal had become a celebration of the ephemeral. A significant part of this has to do with the connection between our chemical senses of smell and taste and deeper aspects of who we are. Our olfactory bulb interfaces with our amygdala and the other structures of our brain's limbic system, which we believe is also the primary processing center for emotion and memory. This is why sense can be so evocative, provoking emotional reactions, calling up memories, and stimulating imagination, which to my mind is just the crafted memory of a thing we haven't experienced yet in real life. This connection to memory and emotion can be a tremendous tool in helping us improve our vocabulary for aroma. If we pay attention to what we're remembering and feeling, it can help us narrow down what we're actually smelling. And remember, when I say smelling, I'm referring not just to breathing in an odor through our noses, but also to the flavor experience when we're tasting, as our olfactory system layers color after color over the textured canvas of our basic tastes. Make careful note of the first images or feelings you experience when smelling or tasting a beer or chocolate, and see if there's a clue hidden in them for where you've smelled or tasted that thing before. For me, that connection to emotion, memory, and imagination has helped to fill, or at least cushion, the void left behind from the religious indoctrination of my childhood. I spent a lot of years believing in angels and demons, prayer and prophecy, celestial realms and earthly rituals, and while those years did a lot of psychological and emotional damage, the sense of wonder they contained did at least lend a purpose and profundity to the everyday. I didn't miss religion when I left it, but I did miss that sense of the magical and the eternal. I said earlier our senses are made of magic, and while I don't believe that's literally true, I do believe our senses can be conduits of wonder, transporting us to places we've been before and places we've only dreamed of, connecting us to past versions of ourselves and to the people around us. Back just before the holidays, I had my sister, Shan, on the podcast, and we talked about this very thing. She talked about how the experience of sharing food and drink with other people is a type of communion, and she said it is at those moments that the veil is thin, the veil between us as individuals, and the veil between the human realm and the mystery that exists beyond us, whatever it contains. When we taste beer or chocolate or another indulgence with other people, it can be a very intimate and even vulnerable experience, as we invite them into our own memories and stories and enter theirs. This, all of this, is why I take the tasting experience so seriously, and why I talk about flavor the way I do. Sometimes, often actually, it's fun to just enjoy a few beers with friends and not really fuss over it, or snag a piece of chocolate from your stash in the middle of the day and enjoy the rush of endorphins without overthinking it. But I hold as sacred the times I quiet my mind and afford myself the space to explore what a beer or chocolate is saying to me, or pick apart those flavors with another person or a group of people. This experience can make us feel very self-conscious. It can run perpendicular to the rapid pace and practical focus of our daily lives. It can feel like we're being pretentious and sticking our pinkies way up in the air. I don't want that. 
I don't mean to make the experience of beer and chocolate stuffy or loaded down with a bloated sense of duty. It should be fun. It should always be fun. And it should be fun for everyone involved. Taking the experience of our senses seriously does not mean we strangle the enjoyment from eating and drinking. It merely means that we acknowledge all the parts of ourselves and others that are engaged by the tasting process, parts we are often bashful to recognize. We feel things when we taste. We remember things. We imagine things. We know some things and don't know other things. All of that is okay, and giving voice to those different components can make us better tasters and can allow our senses to give us a fuller sense of ourselves and a better understanding of those around us. We talked way back in episode two of Bean to Barstool about how the craft chocolate world as a whole seems more willing to engage in this holistic approach to tasting and the more fanciful sensory language that emerges from that than craft beer. Some of that, as pointed out by J.L. Skeffington of French Bard Chocolates and chocolate writer Megan Giller in that episode, stems from the fact that chocolate is something we begin enjoying as children, and even once we reach adulthood, chocolate perpetuates that childlike sense of wonder when we taste it. While we obviously can't drink beer as children, I do try to lean into that sense of wonder when I'm tasting beer as well. That's what Bean to Barstool was born from. I wrote in the welcome post for this podcast that you could think of it as a dream journal written in the complex alphabet of beer and the eloquent vocabulary of chocolate. And I knew there would be listeners who would immediately resonate with that and some who would be potentially put off by it. I opened the very first episode last August with a poetic description of tasting Hirodine Gu's 1882 Black Label in a bar in Belgium, and I painted a very flowery sensory picture of the agrarian scene the beer brought up to mind for me, layered over a lovely song by my friend Anna. I launched the podcast that way knowing that would be a big ask for some listeners because I wanted to establish the way we were going to talk about flavor here. If talking about your feelings and sharing memories and exploring your imagination when you're tasting a beer or chocolate wasn't your thing, Bean to Barstool probably wasn't going to be either. There is a major caveat to all that, though, and it has to do with the harmful way flavor language has been used as a gatekeeping tactic within beer and most other artisan foods and drinks to maintain a Eurocentric sensory vocabulary. Way back in that first episode, when I used all that agrarian language to describe the flavor of a sour beer, I went on to talk about coming to the realization that that language was anything but universal— Sensory references that were second nature to me could be mysteries to someone from a different background, and in turn their references might be wholly new to me. We heard from chocolate educator London Co., who shared that tasting with someone from a different background can challenge our assumptions about our own experiences being universal. Later, in episode 16, we heard from Dr. J. Nicole Jackson Beckham, who explained how the tone and intent of tasting experiences, particularly in educational settings, can be shifted to allow for everyone present to share their impressions and experiences, leading to a broader sensory vocabulary for everyone. When everyone is allowed a voice in the tasting process, we can learn from each other, rather than having a single voice, usually a white male, determining that flavor lexicon for everyone present. I've heard some suggest that the answer to this problem of Eurocentric language excluding people of different backgrounds from getting into beer, wine, chocolate, or other foods and drinks is to flatten the language. Eliminate hyper-specific descriptions altogether, and you'll eliminate the snobbery and exclusion. And I don't think that's the answer. I think it's quite the opposite. 
I think what has to change is the posture and tone of the individual who is offering their own specific tasting notes. If we can change that posture from one of condescension and assumed supremacy to one of invitation and curiosity, that specific language, freely exchanged, can serve as a tool of empathy, helping us understand our fellow human beings and experience their stories through their sensory memories. Please keep being specific with your sensory descriptions, but do so from a position of humble offering and as an invitation to those around you to do the same. The answer isn't a flattened sensory language, but an invitation to taste together and to listen with curiosity and empathy. The answer is a far more robust sensory language than we can yet imagine. So let's talk about how to taste. One of my favorite things about leading educational beer events is walking people through how to slow down and appreciate a beer with all of our senses, and the same should of course be done with chocolate. While a few specific details will change, these steps apply to basically any food or drink you want to taste in a deeper way. Again, this isn't how we always need to enjoy our beer or chocolate. Sometimes it's fun not to overthink it too much, but this is how I taste when I am seeking a deeper appreciation of a particular beer or chocolate. The first way those of us with eyesight will interact with our beer or chocolate is with our sense of vision. We drink and eat with our eyes first. Part of this is about anticipation. Seeing an attractively poured glass of beer or a glossy piece of chocolate in front of us primes our brains for the flavors we're about to enjoy, and studies have been done showing that the visual attractiveness of a food or drink will actually impact how positively we review the flavors of that dish. Beyond anticipation, though, I think it's important to visually appreciate our beer and chocolate for its own sake, as its own worthy step in our overall sensory enjoyment of that creation. This often begins before we even see the beer or chocolate itself. If you've purchased a can or bottle of beer rather than a glass of beer in a bar or tap room, your appreciation begins with the artwork of that package, just as it does with the wrapper of the chocolate bar. I've heard people apologetically confessing that they sometimes buy wine because of the label art, and I don't think there's anything to apologize for there. Learning about beer or chocolate to make more informed purchasing decisions is great, but it doesn't remove the influence and enjoyment of beautifully designed artwork that helps to tell the story of that beer or chocolate. There is a lot of terrible beer label art out there, and there are also countless breweries who are using the labels of their cans and bottles as canvases to better convey the liquid creativity inside the package to the eyes of consumers. Some of these are playful and bizarre, some are elaborate and beautiful, some are simple and clean. But when a brewery understands their own brand and story and partners with the right artist, these labels can deepen our appreciation of what's inside the bottle or can before we ever taste it. Craft Chocolate, in my experience, has avoided most of the unfortunate pitfalls of bad beer label artwork, and I'm continually amazed by the beauty of bean bar chocolate wrappers with creative physical formats and beautiful designs and textures. If you want to hear from a designer who has worked both on beer labels and chocolate labels, you can listen to episode 18, in which I interviewed Nana Goldbake, who designs the beer labels for Lervik Beer and recently did a wrapper for Choco by Karina, both in Norway. Once the bottle or can is opened and poured, or the beer has been delivered to you at the bar or tap room, the visual enjoyment of the beer itself begins. There are a few different things to appreciate here, and the first can be the glassware itself. While perhaps too much has been made of the specific sensory qualities imparted by different glasses, 
There is a lot of tradition behind different styles of beer being served in different glasses, and many of these are truly beautiful. But, of course, it's the beer in the glass that is most alluring. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svitinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beantobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode. When we look at a properly poured glass of beer, we're going to notice a few things simultaneously. Color, clarity, and head formation. The color of almost any beer comes entirely from the malts used in its production, though there are exceptions. I had a beer last week made with beets, and it was a vibrant shade of pink. The typical colors of beer derived from the malt recipe range from pale straw through yellow to gold before sliding into shades of copper and amber, taking on red and bronze before moving eventually into an array of browns, darker and darker to where it appears true black except in direct light, when the thick curtains part and hints of red and brown are betrayed in the depths. Most beer styles are ideally quite clear, allowing the light to catch the beer's color and shine. I think of an amber-colored Marzen lager in the autumn sunlight during Oktoberfest season, or the simple gold of an American pale ale belying the complexity of malt and hop flavors inside, or even that popping pink on the beet ale expressing the earthy roots beneath its name. Some beers, however, can be intentionally hazy or opaque, like the cloudiness of a German Hefeweizen or the juice-like sheen of a New England IPA. And the foam on top? Contrary to popular misconception here in America, that head of foam is definitely supposed to be there, providing an appealing visual contrast to the body of the beer, breaking CO2 out of solution to make the beer more palatable, and releasing enticing aromatics as it leaves the beer. The foam can range from fluffy and pillowy to dense and crema-like. Think of it as the latte art of the beer world. While they are often derided, it was popular for a couple years for brewers to brew glitter beers, beers with edible glitter added that would swirl in the depths of the glass. While I certainly don't want all beers to sparkle, I actually thought these were kind of fun, especially because it got people to slow down and pay attention to their beer. I expressed this opinion on Twitter a while back, and a friend of mine at Fifth Street Brew Pub in Dayton brewed a glitter beer in my honor and named it The Nielsen Effect. The same attention to appearance should be paid to chocolate. Those creative and often delicate wrappers I mentioned a bit ago lead to something of a ritual when it comes to opening a new chocolate bar, as the wrapper is carefully undone, sometimes a shining foil is peeled back, and the bar itself is extricated from its cocoon. There are so many things to pay attention to here, and I love the surprise of what a given maker's bar will look like when I open it for the first time. What color and texture will its surfaces have? 
What shape and mold has the maker chosen? If there are inclusions, how are they incorporated? The color of most chocolates will be determined by the specific beans used, their roast level, and the overall percentage of cacao used in the bar. These offer a richly toned range of browns in most cases, though white chocolate made without cacao solids will be shades of cream. Of course, depending on the inclusion ingredients used, a chocolate bar can be nearly any color, and I've seen bars that are yellow, blue, green, pink, and a rainbow of other hues. Some makers even use these color gradients to tell the story of the bar. Mission Chocolate in Brazil makes a bar called Two Rivers, in which the two halves of the bar are two markedly different shades of brown divided by an undulating center line. The bar is named for the meeting of Rio Negro and Rio Solimios rivers in Brazil, where the dark iron-colored waters of the Negro meet the sandy-toned currents of the Solimios, which gets referred to as the Amazon after this meeting of the waters. The two origins of cacao used in the bar help to visually tell the story of where the bar came from. The mold and shape of the bar are fascinating aspects of its appearance as well. There are a number of attractive and popular mold options used by multiple makers, but some makers opt to design their own unique mold, and these can lead to a bar so beautiful I almost feel bad breaking it apart to taste it. I'm thinking of Naive's unicycling character imprinted on a cloud-shaped bar, or the topography of Stockholm and the Swedish archipelago embossed on the bars from Tails, or of course the French Broad River traced along the bars from French Broad Chocolates. If the bar has inclusion ingredients added, the way they're incorporated will affect the appearance of the bar as well. Some are ground and impact color but nothing else. Some affect texture and ripple the surface of the bar, while some are pressed directly into the surface of the chocolate, announcing their presence and building anticipation for their flavors. I haven't mentioned the serving dish for chocolate because I haven't really landed on one for myself and don't always use one, but I like the idea of developing a ritual of expectation around a particular small dish. If you have a serving dish for chocolate, even if it's just for serving it to yourself, I'd love to see and hear about what you use. After giving visual attention to our beer and chocolate, we move on to our sense of smell by way of orthonasal olfaction. When evaluating a beer for the purposes of judging for a competition or sitting for a tasting exam for a certification, there are a number of different specific sniffing techniques for coaxing all available aromatic information from the beer. They're not all necessary for a more hedonistic sensory experience, though. The important thing is to slow down and smell your beer. You can experiment with different techniques or reach out to me if you want to hear the steps we use most often when doing technical evaluations, but mindfulness is more important than any particular process. I often close my eyes for this, quiet my mind, and then see what my nose can tell me about the malt, hops, yeast, and potential additional ingredients in the beer. I listen to my memories and imagination and allow my mind to wander to any image that comes to mind. I do the same when I'm smelling chocolate, though I do find more of the aroma in chocolate to be locked up in that solid bar than in the effervescent liquid of beer. Still, a patient approach will coax aromas from the bar, and lightly rubbing the chocolate with a thumb to warm it will volatilize more of the aromatics as well. I mentioned earlier that the project of becoming a better taster is really about being able to connect what you're smelling and tasting to specific language. Pretty much everyone's nose can detect the aroma molecules released by a strawberry, but only someone who has smelled a strawberry before in real life and can remember the word will identify it when they smell it again. If someone hasn't smelled a strawberry before, the smell might remind them of something else familiar to them, and they might describe it in those related terms. 
Being able to come up with these descriptive terms can take time. If you feel like you're bad at this, be patient with yourself. You aren't bad at it, you just need practice to learn to employ descriptive language. Don't try to get too specific too quickly. When I'm struggling to identify a smell in a beer or chocolate, I find it useful to start with broad terms. Is it fruity? If so, what family of fruits? Citrus? Great. What kind of citrus? Orange, lemon, grapefruit, etc.? Don't put pressure on yourself to come up with something like overripe mandarin orange pith immediately. Go slowly. Remember beer and chocolate are fun and delicious, that it's a delight to be tasting these things, and whether you find that perfect word or not is not the point. The point is you're paying attention, that you're awake to your senses. Finally, we get to taste our beer or chocolate, and here we actually employ three senses at once, smell, taste, and touch. I've already explained how smell and taste interact, and if you want to measure the level of a basic taste like sweet or sour in one of these samples without aroma interfering, you can use the pinched nose trick when you first put it in your mouth. While you're allowing the beer or chocolate's flavor to sink in and permeate your mouth and brain, and heart, let's be honest, take note of what your sense of touch is experiencing as well. This is what we refer to as mouthfeel. With beer, this means noticing things like temperature, carbonation level, weight, texture, and alcohol warmth. The carbonation level of the beer can impact whether the beer feels creamy, prickly, effervescent, still, etc. The carbonation level can also impact our perception of other sensory aspects of the beer, with higher carbonation generally accentuating our perceptions of bitterness and dryness. The weight of the beer can be a tricky thing to accurately evaluate because it is influenced by subconscious perceptions. People tend to think of darker beers as heavier than lighter beers, but the color of a beer has absolutely nothing to do with its finishing gravity, the literal weight of the beer. Dark beers can be extremely light-bodied, and pale beers can be very full and heavy. The heaviness and fullness of a beer have to do with the amount of residual sugar and protein left behind after fermentation, and color has nothing to do with that. It's not really necessary to parse all of that while tasting, though. Just get a sense of how the beer feels in your mouth, and feel free to assign some words to that without worrying if they're technically accurate. Chocolate offers a different set of mouthfeel sensations from beer while you're enjoying its flavors, including, of course, the texture of the chocolate itself, but also the pattern of the mold, the thickness of the bar, the pace and process of the melt, and the influence of any inclusions. The silky creaminess of a dark milk bar offers a different delight from the crunchiness of a bar with added nibs, or the varying textures of different fruits or other ingredients. One of my favorite things to do as soon as I pop a piece of chocolate into my mouth is feel all the contours of the piece with my tongue, from the rough edge of the break to the smooth surfaces and any unique patterns of the mold. On a bar with a special mold like the ones I mentioned earlier that tell part of the story of the bar, I like to trace those patterns with my tongue and feel like I'm seeing them with a totally different sense, walking a map in my mind, its edges dissolving into curves, its surface slowly melting into nothing and releasing the land's memories as flavor along the way. After swallowing the beer or chocolate, I engage my sense of smell one last time by closing my mouth and breathing out through my nose, giving my olfactory bulb one more kick of aroma to glean any last secrets from it. The last sense to talk about is hearing. This is a funny one. We use our sense of hearing more than we realize during eating and drinking, though much of it is subconscious. The noises of food preparation, from the sizzle of cooking to the sound of pouring a drink into a glass, can build anticipation much like our sense of sight does. 
And even while we're chewing chocolate or swishing beer, our sense of hearing is picking up information about texture. With chocolate specifically, we can consciously engage our sense of hearing by paying attention to the snap of a bar when we break off a piece, which can tell us something about the tempering of the bar and the expected texture, but more than anything serves as a fun ritual before tasting. The way we really engage our sense of hearing while tasting, though, is by doing it with other people and sharing our experiences as we go. That might sound like a gimmick, but I mean it with absolute sincerity. Our sensory experiences are gateways to entire worlds within us, worlds of memories and experiences that have been informed by where we've lived and the places we've been, the cultures we've been a part of in our homes and broader communities, our ethnic and religious and socioeconomic backgrounds, and the singular traits that make us unique individuals. When we approach the tasting experience with curiosity and vulnerability, we can listen to those around us share their inner worlds and share ours with them. This is such an important part of tasting beer and chocolate thoughtfully. Sometimes we taste with friends and sometimes strangers, sometimes in formal classroom settings and sometimes casually in a tap room or chocolate shop, sometimes at home with an intimate gathering, sometimes alone. Tasting experiences are as varied as beer and chocolate themselves, and I'm continually amazed by the unexpected settings where I found myself enjoying a beer or chocolate, from sipping Trappist ales in a Catholic church basement to savoring a garlic-infused white chocolate in an art gallery, from drinking sour apricot ale with a friend in a cemetery watching the stars long after dark to taking comfort from a pine-infused dark chocolate on a bitter winter night in the woods, from drinking rustic lager on a working farm with Hungarian mangalitsa piglets running around to tasting a caramel milk chocolate while soaking wet on the coast of Iceland in the face of a hellacious winter storm. Tasting experiences are as varied as beer and chocolate are. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, I miss all those varied settings and new memories, though we're slowly getting to make them again. But even before the pandemic, so many of my favorite moments came at home, tasting beer and chocolate alone or with my wife and daughter, and that'll never change. When I taste at home, I want to respect my senses enough to set the scene a bit, to put my body and mind at peace and allow the moment to come to me. No, I'm not immune to grabbing a piece of chocolate while I'm in the middle of the workday typing away on my laptop, but I try to carve out times to take things slower as well. I like to make sure there's good music on, that the lighting is pleasing, and that I'm seated comfortably. I'll take a few seconds to calm and center and then begin tasting. Like I said earlier, I don't mean to make this sound rigid or dry, but a small amount of effort to quiet the world and our minds for a short time will help us tap into what our senses can do. I recently read a chocolate writer saying she changes her diet in the days before a review tasting, and while I admire her commitment, I don't think that's necessary or realistic for most of us. Our sensory experiences exist in the real world where our bodies live and work and rest, and while we should put them in a place to best enjoy our indulgences, we don't need to be ascetic. Don't do a beer chocolate tasting right after a meal, but otherwise, you should be fine. It's important to remember, too, that we are changing instruments. The time of day, our health, our mood, our general nutrition level, how hungry or thirsty we are, and many other factors influence our senses, so you'll never be the exact same taster twice. If you taste a beer or chocolate you've had before and it tastes slightly different than you remember, it might actually be you who is slightly different, coming to those flavors in a different frame of mind. 
One of the things I found fascinating is how my memories of flavor can subtly shift as well. Our memories aren't nearly as immutable as we think, and this applies to our sensory memories too. There's a novelist and film writer named Nicholas Rhombus who has written about what he calls the gift of misremembering. He was writing specifically about films he had seen that had a major impact on him, but that he had only had the chance to see once, and he said, The curse of our times may be that it's now impossible to forget. The books and films and TV shows we loved hang around, it seems, forever, denying us the foggy pleasure of misremembering them. High-definition memory, the tyranny of the past collapsing in and in and in on the present. Something like this can happen with our tasting experiences, too. We taste a beer or chocolate when the moment is just right, when we are just right, and the flavors bloom in our minds and we remember them as inviolable entities. But the pleasure of the memory can elevate and distort those flavors in dazzling ways. Later, we might get the chance to taste that beer or chocolate again, and it's still good, but it's not exactly what we remembered. It can't match that golden memory. Short of a production flaw, it isn't the beer or chocolate that changed. It's us. It's our shifting senses and our malleable memories. Memories that are a gift so long as we don't enforce them onto our present sensory experiences. Every time we taste something, we are tasting it in a way for the first time. The memory of the last time is something else. That is also how we learn to like things we've previously not enjoyed. The process of acquiring a taste isn't about telling yourself you like something you hate. It's about curiosity, desire, growth, and the layering of positive experiences. We're beginning to re-enter the world, and I have hopes that we might return to normal life someday, though I don't know when yet. We'll make new memories, taste new things, see places we've never seen before, and maybe even enjoy some beer and chocolate in each other's company. I can't wait till that can happen. In the meantime, I'll be here sharing my tasting experiences with you and helping to tell the stories of great brewers and chocolate makers. Please share with me your own stories, the beers and chocolates that have dazzled you recently. I love hearing those reflections. Taste broadly. Taste and smell everything you can. Buy fruits you've never had at the market, smell spices, sniff flowers, order foods or drinks you haven't had before. Take notes, talk to the people around you, Listen to their stories and memories. Lean into your own. Play with language. The words are there. Finding them isn't the most important thing about the tasting experience. Searching for them and what you discover about yourself along the way is. In the next episode of Being to Barstool, we'll talk about beer and chocolate pairings and explore some of my favorite pairings from the last year. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Being to Barstool. Thank you.